Hello and welcome to Secondhand Film Critics, your favorite source for mildly pretentious, semi-uneducated, and highly unqualified opinions on movies. I'm Noah, and I am here with my co-host... Kayla. Scout leader Kayla, I should have said. Scoutmaster Kayla. Khaki Scout Kayla. That's... Uh, we're khaki scout... Honorary khaki scouts today. We are. Um, <laughs> I would like to dress up as a khaki scout for Halloween one year. Yeah. We... I don't know why I have never, never thought of that. Like, Edward Norton, he's got it on. I could just go off of what he's wearing. Yeah, I think we should do, a, like, a Wes Anderson party and then, oh like, my gosh, dress please. up as Wes Anderson characters for the party. But you don't say which movie you're dressing up from. Well, I think it would be pretty obvious if you were a khaki scout. No, 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 I'm saying before you go, though. So, like, oh. you tell people, dress up, like, maybe three months in advance, because you might need some prep for some of these outfits. But, uh-huh. like, dress up as any Wes Anderson movie character. And you you go from there. I mean, that could be our question of the week right there. What character would you dress up as at our uh, fake Wes Anderson party? Mm. Um, I don't know. I have There's mine. so many good ones. I think. I, I have a couple, but I have maybe some that first come to mind. Mm, well, maybe until before we start coming up with a, another question of the week, we should probably get to our answers to last week's question of the week. Um, which if this is your first time listening to the podcast, at the end of every episode, we ask a question of the week that pertains to our episode topic. So last week we reviewed Jordan Peele's new movie, Nope. And because of the fact that they have, um, what Jupiter's Jupiter's claim, Jupiter's claim, they built that on like the Universal Studios lot or something that you can go visit that set. We asked... What movie set would you like to see as an attraction in a theme park? Which mm. there's so many, so many options. And we definitely got some options here that you guys gave us. So let's get to some of those answers. If you don't want to listen to this and want to skip right to the episode, there's a timestamp in the description. But let's get into it. Yeah. Who said what? Yeah. So Sandy said The Hobbit slash Lord of the Rings, which I agree. Mm. Isn't there already like a thing in New Zealand a little bit too, like where they filmed it? Right. Yeah, like you can vi- see the Hobbit house or whatever. Right. It would be so cool if they like built like a whole village though. Like, you know, in Harry Potter. The el- What about the elven place too? Like, yeah, place? like you could go to each of the different like areas. Like you could. Hmm. Bilbo's be- house is like the restaurant. Yeah. You know how they always eat. And then you eat. can they like walk through one. the village. And fireworks show at night, like the first Lord of the Rings. Who owns Lord of the Rings? What is that? Warner Warner Brothers. Brothers. So Universal could do it, but I don't think that they own the exclusive rights. Like I think you have to get, Mm. um, like approved by the Tolkien estate or whatever. Mm. Those darn Tolkien's. That would that would sell though. People would love that. Big Lord of the Rings fan here. Love The Hobbit um, and the books. Speaking of a movie I'm a fan of, this is a movie I'm not a fan of. Um, Mike Ooh. said he wants a Goonies indoor water park. A Goonies hater here. Not a fan of Goonies, you know? I never grew up with it, so I didn't have. The, I don't have the nostalgia. Yeah, either, you know? I didn't that, grow that's a big up with thing. it either. I didn't mind it, but I definitely like. It's one of those movies I think you had to have loved when you were younger to like really love it now. Like I can appreciate kind of what it did for that sort of like kids adventure genre, but yeah, 
But a, an indoor water park could be fun. Like, that's a fun twist on it. Yeah, I think that's maybe not what you would expect when you first pitch like a Goonies ride or something. But I think that would be a great uh, a great thing. That's Warner Brothers too. So maybe they could build cool that right next to the Lord of the Rings. To have like a, like a lazy river that goes like through the wow. set. So you have like the house and then it goes in through like a cave and then like a pirate ship. It's like a small world kind of thing? Yeah, but like a lazy river. So you're on the water and you're going through the like story on like in the lazy river. Mm. I think that would be fun. Maybe they could just do like a Goonies themed hotel too. And then that lazy river is a part of the hotel. Sure. Uh, What did we say? We we got Zombie Land, which I don't know if I would like. This is from Zach. Uh, I don't know if I'd like to go to Zombie Land, actually. That might be a no from me. Well. What about the, well. At the end, isn't there a theme park at the end, actually? I think so. Like, that's the climax is at an amusement park. Here's how I so see maybe it. maybe that's what he was thinking. Is that I think it would be more like Halloween Horror Nights, where, like, you you can get scared and you can have the adrenaline of it, but you know that they're never going to touch you. You know what I mean? Like, you can experience know, it, yeah, yeah, but yeah. in a safe way. So it's like someone who safe, wants fun to environment. Have yeah, like I feel like there's ways it could be done. Could Bill Murray be there? Could we have Bill Murray on? Maybe that he's just permanently a part of the <laughs> the set, always there. What if it was like um like laser tag almost, and the zombies <laughs> have like laser tag stuff, well, so you can still like kill yeah. the zombies? Don't they use a baseball bat to kill them though? Mostly, I don't know. Uh, do they use I mean, guns? they use the gun. He uses the gun to shoot Bill Murray. Spoiler. That's true. Sorry to everyone that hasn't seen Zombieland. Bill Murray dies as Bill Murray. That's a great a bit, twist. though. <laughs> it is. Well, Bill Murray is always will commit to the bit, so it that he they were the perfect person to uh to pick. Um, and then your mom answered, and wow. she said Mary Poppins. So many ride ideas: tea party on the ceiling, carousel races, tidy up the nursery. I think that would be a fun mini game, like tidy up the nursery. Like you have to do it in a certain amount of time. They are like have kids lining up to clean a room. Here, <laughs> like, here is my so idea, though, with that. What if to get into the theme park, you go through like a bathtub slide? So like, like the from opening, the second movie. The, yeah, yeah, like the opening to the theme park is the bathtub and then you go into mm. it and then you're in Mary Poppins world. There might there might be some lawsuits that come from that, but I like sure. the idea. Sure, I mean, like it could be an option. They would need to definitely incorporate the second movie somehow because they want to push that probably as well, and that's an easy way to get it in there. And that's one of the better scenes I think from the second one is the bathtub thing. Um, it's one of the only things I really remember from that movie. So that would be a yeah. fun like world to be in, though. Mary Poppins. Yeah, yeah I would like love fun... if they even just did the chalk world mm. like the when they go in the chalk world like that would be i would just do, do that honestly that would be awesome and you have the penguin restaurant and you have the carousel and maybe like they obviously not a real horse race but they could do like a horse race ride maybe mm-hmm. like that would be awesome they there's a lot i'm surprised like they don't have something like that in disney world like a mary poppins i'm sure they have some mary poppins stuff but like i feel like they could do so much more um danny said you know uh this was saw it's coming a mile away a dune theme park (laughs) you could ride the sandworm coaster 
drink a spice beer, and take a tour around the park on the Thopter train. Kids could even hunt for spice in the Arrakis sandbox. Wow. You know? (laughs) And they only serve water. That's the only drink is water. Yeah, I mean, I could see it. Like, I I could see, like, a dune ride at, like, Universal. Like, with riding the sandworm, that's an easy roller coaster idea, Uh is riding the sandworm. Like, that is such a perfect, like, it's just built for that. I'm sure if Dune 2 is even bigger than Dune 1, I think they might. I mean, I think, because they're doing the HBO show, right? Like, they might Uh add a ride. Like, that could be an easy, and that's an easy thing, like. The, the sandworm coaster and it's a more adult leaned movie or like teenager so they don't have to gear the ride for kids either so it would work um yeah i think that would be really age cool. demographic i would love that and the music han zimmer music on the ride man that'd be sick and then laura also from film is lit said she would go to a blade runner theme park hmm which we haven't seen Blade Runner. Yeah, I haven't seen Blade Runner. Rip. But I think any futuristic theme park would be great. Yeah, like, and I think like they Tomorrowland, could... you know, like something like that. Like I love stuff like that. Anything they could futuristic. do so much with like cool lighting in like a city. Like I think it would be cool to do yeah. like just a street even that you could like walk through where they have like mm-hmm. the lighting and stuff, like maybe some restaurants. I've never I've yeah, never w- watched Blade Runner, would but they I have, assume would they have um naked projections like in the mm. city? Would that be part of it as well? Yeah, why not? I, 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 I think I think that could be an addition that we could use definitely for this theme park. But speaking of film is lit, uh today actually, right? Oh yes, that's when so true. this episode comes out at the same time as this one. We have an episode coming out on their podcast where we talk about um, Stand By Me and Stephen King's The Body. Mm. So make sure once you're done here, yes. you pop over and listen to us on Film Is Lit. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes for that too. You know, it's like a double feature day. You got this episode and pop right over to that one. Um, exciting stuff. So yeah, thank you for everyone that put in your uh answers and then at the end of this episode we'll have another question for you all to answer that we'll read in the next episode it's a never-ending cycle Mm. um (laughs) but let's get into the episode topic yeah what is our what is our episode today oh boy oh boy oh boy um we have got (laughs) another summer of wes episode uh where we will be talking about fantastic mr fox and wow. Moonrise Kingdom and the Grand Budapest wow. Hotel. So we've got a lot going on today, um, but it's very exciting. So much to cover. It's funny because, like, I know we've made this comparison. Obviously, we've only done a summer of something twice. Um, yes. But last year, when we were getting towards the end of the summer, it was like excruciating getting through Star to watch Wars the content. Star Wars movie. Yeah, and God, now it's sorry like, to Star Wars fans. I can't get enough. Like I It's great. So it's very exciting. Like I don't hate Star Wars, but it was so much. But like this is uh, it's fun more fun when you're doing something you really love opposed to yeah, who would, something who that guessed? you're like a, a middling fan of, you know? Yeah, well, maybe the Star Wars one that finally cemented that maybe Star Wars just isn't hundred to- percent mm-hmm. my my kind of thing, you know, and that is fine. But I have yeah really enjoyed this. So 
for the uninitiated, this summer we've been doing um, the series where we go through Wes Anderson's filmography. So in May's episode, uh, we covered Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. Last month in June, am I wrong? No, in June's episode, we covered Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. We didn't start in May. Then July's episode was Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic, and Darley Geeling Limited. And then you already said the ones we'll doing for this one. And then we'll have one more episode in September to wrap it all up. And yeah, I've really loved going through his filmography. I love going through director's filmographies in chronological order um, anytime. And I think that's so fun. But it's also been fun. Like, I've really been every time like I start one of the movies, like trying to really deep dive into that movie specifically. Mm. And so it's like been really cool, like having those things like just like, okay, this week I'm going to be. Because I have a lot of the criterions too. So like I'll, I'm going to be putting in Fantastic Mr. Fox. And then I basically keep the Blu-ray in like my Blu-ray player like all week long. And like, okay, I'll watch the movie, watch some of the behind the scenes, watch the the commentary, read about it. Like it's been fun, I think. Um, and like you said, a lot more fun than uh, the Star Wars one. Mostly too, because like there was different, these are different movies, even though it's the same director. Like yeah. Star Wars are very they're all like they're star wars movies so there are going to be more similar mm-hmm. it's it'd be different i guess if we were covering like today royal tenenbaums like seven like i maybe i would feel differently <laughs> so I, I it might be a bad comparison but yeah um so like you said the first movie is fantastic mr fox and this is an exciting episode because not only do we like all three i mean i've liked pretty much most of them but we all like we both like all three of these, but also these are the first ones we'll have like actual personal anecdotes to, to share, <laughs> you know, I have some connection to these outside of the last three years or four years. Yeah, um, definitely. Do you want to read the summary here quick though, before we get into it? So yeah, if, sure. If maybe you guys forgot about what Fantastic Mr. Fox is about and you just need a refresher. That's what we're here for. Uh-huh. Um, Mr. Fox is a former chicken thief turned local newspaper man living in a dirt hole with his wife, Mrs. Fox, and son, Ash. However, Mr. Fox cannot be tamed for long, and he soon starts stealing from local farmers, Boggus, Bunce, and Bean, to satisfy his appetite for danger. Will he be able to keep up this lie and continue to live his normal life, or will his lust for adventure be his undoing? So this is obviously based on the book, Fantastic Mr. Fox by Roald Dahl. Um, and yeah, so this is his first adaption. I think only adaption, really. Yeah, um, so far. Soon to be two. But yeah, so personally, I guess I'll, I can start. So this was, I think for most people our age, this is probably the first one, Wes Anderson movie most people would have watched, you know? Like, obviously, if you're older, you would have started probably with Tenenbaums or maybe Ball Rocker even, you know? But for people our age, I think this is usually the first one that you see because it's like the kids movie, obviously. So this is definitely the first one I saw. Um, I when this came out, Roald Dahl is like my favorite author ever. Like I probably I probably thought like there was no better writing that ever out there. And I'm not bad. He's a very good writer. So I wasn't like super wrong. But he was like I was obsessed with Roald Dahl. Um, And so I was really excited for this movie. Obviously didn't know who Wes Anderson was at all because I was nine maybe even eight when I heard about the movie. So wasn't aware of the director behind it. And so when I watched it, I mean, obviously too, now you look at the book and it's so short and there's so little story that it makes, it's obvious that you'd have to add a lot of stuff. But I think, you know, when you, you're such like a book purist, you know, I think when you're a kid, especially cause I was like, 
I probably read the book like over 10 times. I'm, I've read most of his book like over 10 times probably when I was that age. Um, and so I don't think I liked it when I first saw this movie. I'm pretty sure I did not like it. Um, I saw it like not when it came to theater, but basically right when it came to like, remember Redbox? Remember? <laughs> yeah, we used Redbox all the time. Red, $1 rentals, next day return. Got all, that was what a great. Yeah, we system. had a Redbox Bring- like. 10 minutes up at the local gas station and we got Redbox. Oh, actually, I think it's still there. I think people still use Redbox. I think they do. Whenever I went, you went to the grocery store, I, was all, I always would go on and see what movies they had, like scroll through, you know? Um, but yeah, that's where I watched this was like when it came to there. And yeah, I definitely, when I first saw it, did not like it. And But then I think, I don't know who got it for me, but I got the DVD, like someone bought it for me. And I think I watched, I've probably seen this movie over like 20 times. Um, it became a movie that I watched a lot. And ev- eventually I must have just started loving it. I don't remember when I started liking this movie. Obviously now I love it, which we'll talk about. But that's kind of weird because I remember distinctly not liking it when I first saw it. But then I know I got the DVD and then I eventually, you know, you, you just watch something a lot of times and it kind of sticks with you. And I, and I think it's definitely a movie as we'll talk about that. There's a lot of like things that you'll pick up as you watch it more and more because there's so much going on in the movie um but what about you was this is obviously the i think this is the first one you watched right no i watched moonrise kingdom oh, first wow. i think i was wrong already proven wrong i don't remember the first time i watched this one um i know that i watched it at some point like before the past few years but i don't remember when or who I watched it with. I, I don't think I saw it in the theater. Um, I feel like I would remember that. If I asked my brother, I'm sure. Sh- well, if you, saw it in the, if you saw it in the theater, then that would be yes, your first, right? Yeah, it would have been my first. Uh, the only one I remember distinctly watching was Moonrise Kingdom. Um, mm. I mean, I do too. We'll talk right, about that Right, but I, yeah. I don't remember. I mean, this could have been the first, um, but I'm not 100% sure, so. Yeah. But it was an early one, like before you. Yeah, it was definitely second or third. Yeah, it would have been one of the first ones that I watched for sure. Um, But I mean, it's it's the most rewatchable for me. Um, Like I rewatched this one more than other ones uh, because it's so Mm -hmm. easy and fun. Um, Like I've watched it a couple times just in the past year alone. Um, So yeah, same. I don't know. I never get bored of it. Yeah, that's why maybe when I had the DVD, like that's maybe why I just even if I didn't like it at first, like I feel like it's just very easily rewatchable, like you said. So it's easy to keep watching and then you pick up on some of the small little jokes. Um, And obviously, like this is, I think, for kids, like a very different kind of movie, even though it is like kid appropriate, the story. There's a lot of stuff that's in this movie that's very different than other Uh, kids movies so i think too like there's a lot to take in when you're like eight or nine and there's like so many different like so many things that are being done in this movie that most kids at that age would not have like seen in any other movies unless like their parents are like showing them like studio ghibli movies which then they would have seen it but um yeah just a little bit about the movie obviously this is a stop motion movie and i i did read that he wanted to do this movie since Tenenbaums. Um, but it took a while. Like, I think that's when he even visited the house. 
Um, and that's about when the rights were bought in 2004. But it took a while for them to like finalize everything. And so then obviously they didn't make it to 2009. But he originally signed on with Henry Selleck, uh, who worked on Life Aquatic. Um, but then Selleck left to work on Coraline, which also came out in 2009 and was also nominated for Best Animated Feature. I so did look at that. watch Coraline, I think, in the theater, I feel like. Wow. And I have them, v- both VHSs, beside each other on my shelf. That was a great year for stop motion. Wow. It was. Well, and because it lost, obviously. It, he's never won an Oscar him. Um, but it lost to Up. But even then, like Up was nominated that year. And I think when I looked at the Oscars, there was four of the five animated because Coraline was another one. There's one more that I was like, wow, this is a good animated movie year. Let me just look it up. Why not? Uh, the other one, Secret of the Kells. Great movie. Secret of Kells. Um, and then Princess and the Frog, which even though that's Disney, I think that's one of the more creative, like, yeah, recent hand-drawn, Disney movies. Yeah, hand-drawn, right? That was one of their most recent hand-drawn. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, what a great animated film category. Like, even though I would definitely have picked Fantastic Mr. Fox. What was the fifth movie? Uh, so there's Up, Up, Up one, 1, and then Coraline, Mr. Fox, Princess and the wow, Frog. Wow, that's and a great year. Yeah. And now we're getting, like, Over the Moon. Right? Wasn't that nominated? <laughs> a lot of people really liked Over the Moon. I did not. I thought it was trash. Um, <laughs> Over the Moon was I one of the worst animated movies I've seen. this next year is going to be one of the best animated categories in a while. Hmm. That's interesting. My yeah. There's, well, Pinocchio. Pinocchio and the new Henry Selleck film come out this year, and those are both stop motion. Right. So I'm hoping we get both of those in. We'll see. Um, yeah, but. Just back to this movie. I mean, uh, we both love this movie. This is, um, I think, I mean, we haven't, I haven't rewatched the Isle of Dogs and French Dispatch yet, so I don't want to finalize anything, but it's, I think this is my second favorite um, movie by him. And my only other five star, I have two five stars, and mm. this is like my other one. Because we've talked a lot about, I mean, the main story that he's told basically every movie before this about like the opinionated like male figure at the center of the movie who has to like learn a lesson and become a better person um he it's basically all the movies before this had the same Mm -hmm. story and i think this is like definitely the best like perfected version of that and like other of the movies maybe have deeper pathos or like they explore different things but i think this one is just such a clear-cut way to tell that story and he does it like this whole movie is like so amazingly paced through like there's not a wasted second so you can really tell like he's finalized this type of story that he wants to tell and he never really revisits it in any of the movies after this so like you can tell like i think like you do this and it's like okay that story i think i got Uh that one out of me um so that's i think one reason why where it's like he's worked on those themes for what is it five movies before this like so like this is the sixth movie he's worked on those kind of in that thematic area so that's like feels so ironed out and so seamlessly integrated into the story. Um, but even then, like in those other themes that he hasn't tackled before, which are more existential themes. I mean, he tackles existential themes, but the way he tackles them in this, I don't know. Maybe it's because he was also forced. It's a kid's movie. So I think a lot of times when you put those limits on yourself, you kind of find creative ways to tackle those sure. themes. So that might be another reason why, like, I think, a lot of the themes in this movie are a lot more potent than some of his other ones. And like they just like 
works so well with the story. So that's my main reason why I really like it. But there's a lot of other reasons. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I, I The main reason I like this movie is because it feels very fall vibes. It gives me good fall cozy feelings. And we all know that I'm a big fan of Autumn. And big fall fan. Obviously, the music. Yeah. Uh, I listen to the soundtrack a lot. Oh, the score is so good. Such a good score. I think it's just like a fun movie. Like, like I said, it because it's so rewatchable. Like, it's just really mm. easy to pop on, and I love that about it. And then, like, if I want to think hard about the themes or like get into the deeper elements of it, I can. But I can also just watch it and have a good time without having to like focus mm. on that stuff, which I think is like a perfect balance in a movie. Yeah, like I said, yeah. Like I think Life Aquatic, it's a lot harder to watch that movie as just a movie, you know? Um, where with this one, like yeah. the themes are really well woven through the story. Like I said, like I think he really did a he learned over five movies how to like weave those themes through the story. And I think in his the rest of his movies you can even though he's not telling the same story, like you can see uh-huh. that there the themes are a lot better integrated. Because I think that's really what he's what I've noticed more is like he's really more of a director than like we were just talking about Jordan Peele and Jordan Peele with and maybe too that's like people's projections on his movies, but it feels like themes are a lot more at the forefront of his stories a lot of the time. Um and I just picked it because like we just talked about him, but he's not the only person. Uh but I think with Wes's movies, he's definitely a lot more interested in just telling stories and having people p- take what they want from that. But it always feels with his movies like he's more focused on just like telling a fun and like interesting story first and foremost. And I think with this movie, you can really feel that like there are deeper aspects, but it is just like such a fun story. And there's so many funny things and like interesting things going on. It's just a, like you said, it just works as a movie first and foremost. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the decision to stop motion over doing it like hand drawn or something like that was a great decision, too, because it all feels so like real. I don't think this would work as well. Hand-drawn. Yeah, I can't imagine it being any different than like stop motion. Um, could you imagine also like the the modern like <laughs> animation, like the bubbly characters? <laughs> Oh my god! I feel like it would be like more like, eyes. Um, yeah, like the bad guys was like that style of animation yeah. I could potentially see, but I think stop motion is what gives it the grounding um, of the story as well. Mm. I it's interesting because like you know t- what would have happened if he had made this as early as he wanted to in his career, because I feel like everything else leads up to this one specifically as the turning point in his career, which you've said. Um, but like, since he did want to make it earlier, it would have been interesting to see like how different it would have been compared to like how it was. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, I think his movies after it, like, I don't think he would have made Life Aquatic or Darjeeling probably after, like, because I think like the experience of making this movie changed a lot of his approach to movie making. So yeah, it would have been a completely different career. I think it was a good though, because like like we we've been saying, like it definitely. I think in Darjeeling and Life Aquatic, you can see a lot of growing pains in those movies. Even though I do like Life Aquatic a lot, so I think it was good. You know, it's always good to like try stuff out and see what works. 
But I think something that works a lot about this movie too is they did kind of film it differently though because the dialogue was all like recorded outdoors, primarily outdoors with like them recreating. Did you watch the behind I the did. scenes for this? Because it's it is so funny. Anyone that can watch the behind the scenes for this needs because like watching them like run around fields <laughs> and like George Clooney doing somersaults <laughs> like and like saying his lines well, like it's so he, funny. Like, does the eating where he, he like is actually doing it? Yes. Where Mr. Fox is like like that is what George Clooney is actually doing, um, which yeah. just made it really funny. Um, and I think. Obviously, that's not something that they had to do to get good voice performances, but I'm glad that they did it because I think it just shows mm. like how much they cared about the project and making it seem good, I guess. like It's not just like manufactured. like It actually is a project that seems like yeah. a lot of artistic value went into it because I think a lot of the issue with animated movies, but a lot of modern movies like Over the Moon, for example, you referenced, feel just so manufactured. Like, it feels like, mm. and that's not to say those animators aren't, you know, caring about their job, but it it, do, it feels like it comes from a studio, you know, um, like the studio has mm. control over it and is like, we just want this and we want it to be simple. But like someone like Wes Anderson can have so much more control over his artistic process. And I think that's one reason why this has been like still consistently hailed as, you know, a great stop motion but also a great animated movie um like one of the better animated movies mm. of the last like 20 years yeah yeah you can really feel the dedication and like he i in some of the behind the scenes i know a lot of the animated directors and like art designers were like talking about how even like the way they shot a lot of the scenes was very different than they're they were used to in sh working on other stop motion things so like i think it's also interesting like as much as i think the process of making stop motion changed the way he made movies. It was, it, it's also like his experience making live action movies changed the way this movie was made as opposed to if it was made by someone like maybe if Henry Selleck was even like more heavily involved, like who had really experienced in doing stop motion movies. Like there's a lot of stuff like that kind of combination really works well. But yeah, I think with this, we've talked, we talked in the Darjeeling section last episode about how, I mean, he was kind of exploring the limits of being able to create a world, you know, I think in a, in a film, but w with this movie, it's stop motion. So you with stop motion movies, you're literally creating every part of the world, like literally not even like a figurative, like you literally are creating everything. And so I think that was pretty formative because being able to have that level of control over a movie is like exactly what you would, I think he would like, and I don't think he likes to really control like the actor performances, but I do think he really likes to control the shots and like w the scenery and everything. And I think that's what really yeah. shows in this. Like we said, like he filmed those scenes so organically, like the um, dialogue, but everything around the dialogue is very controlled. And I think that we'll see makes a like, he figured out a new way to like control or create a world with by making this movie. Yeah, and it also seems like he's someone, like we say he's in control, but also is like very adamant about like collaboration as well. Yeah. So like he's very structured, but like he's not a controlling director in the same way that like Tarantino is. Um mm -hmm. I would or say Fincher, from, I think. Yeah, or Fincher. Um like 
listening to the, which we can talk about later, but like the Grand Budapest commentary, like mm. they were talking about what was improv and what was added and who said this. And it seems like, you know, everything he does, like he's very open to input from the people he's working with and mm-hmm. like trying to work alongside with other people, which I think is really cool. Cause I think a lot of times when there's a very specific director, especially like a white male director, you hear a lot of those things. Like, I think Fincher's a great director, and there are people that love working with Fincher. I've heard good things about him. But he also is someone that, like, you know is extremely controlling over the way sets are run and mm-hmm. the way the movie's made. How you deliver your lines, like, everything. Yeah, which yeah. is fine, and everyone's different, but it's always But I feel like you would watch a Wes Anderson movie and assume that's the way that he would work. Like, that's yeah. what I think I thought more going into this. Like, it's very refreshing to, to hear in all the behind-the-scenes stuff I watched, like, the way that the other people talk about Wes and, like, the way the kids talk about Wes. And, like, it seems like everyone just loves working with him which is very clear Mm -hmm. because everyone continues working with him (laughs) for like all their projects um both in the cast and he carries the same crew with him um throughout so it's just cool i think this is like a great example of of that because he's Mm -hmm. working in a different medium so obviously he's not as familiar with this medium but he's able to like still get his vision across yeah, one of my favorite things in some of the thing like they showed what he did for this movie was he would shoot a lot of like scenes of himself acting them out like on his iPhone. Mm, yeah. And would like send them like that's so funny. Um and also I found out from like doing some research that apparently like he had when they were like animating the sequences after like stuff and recording and stuff like he had like a 30 camera setup at his apartment. Oh my gosh. And so like he remote directed from his apartment and like all 30 cameras, like he could view all the cameras. Like, like that's crazy. Um, I do have two pieces of trivia that uh, I want you to answer. So we'll see. Okay, great. The first thing is what, there's only one scene in this movie that uses any CGI. Do you know what scene that is? Hmm. I'm trying to think. I remember him saying he was like, trying not to use cgi mm-hmm. and there's not like a lot of, like the water the waterfall is the thing i was most surprised at that it's like the silica like what is it that what do we call it cellophane thing that you write cellophane yes yeah like stuff like that but yeah there is one scene that uses cgi the thunder thunderstorm no the 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 cgi in this movie actually is the when the flint mine is flooded i think specifically when they're like going through the pipes you know so i think maybe they like animated the puppets and then they like digitally put that onto the water um that was the part that was i think it's like when they're in the pipes you know when it shows like the pipe cut halfway i think that's interesting uh and then this one is more of a crapshoot but how many puppets were used in this movie um okay let's see well, because they were in the doc, the behind the scenes, they were talking about they needed like four different sizes of puppets too for like yeah, and then you how would far need away the shots were different expressions for each, mm. and then different ones that do different things. So probably for the main characters, they needed, I would say, for at least him and a couple, they would need a couple hundred i would think for at least Mm -hmm. the main characters 
if you add up right. all the like different ra- sequences. The, the rabbit doesn't need as many as Mr. Fox Yeah, does. like if yeah. you're thinking the different sizes, like most of the characters would it need, need at least three sizes, but then the main characters mm. you would think probably have, like maybe the four or five main characters probably have like anywhere from like 20 to 70 different ones for them. Mm. Mm. And then there's probably, what, 100 different characters? 150 maybe. different characters. Maybe. Who's to say? Who's to say? So I would say maybe like at least 400. Mm. Um, maybe like 450, 475. You're pretty close. 535 puppets wow. were used. That's a lot of puppets. Which is a lot of puppets. You know, I a lot of people ask like, what would you want to take from a film set if you could? And like, this is such an easy answer. Like, I would just take one of the puppets. I saw I saw them at the Academy Museum. I have a picture wow. with um, Fox. You have the picture with Mr. Fox himself. I have, I have a picture uh, with m- one of the Mr. Fox puppets and one of the Mrs. Fox wow. puppets that were at the Academy, awesome. are displayed at the Academy Museum. It was very exciting for me. I was like, because it was, they also had a lot of the like, um, Tim Burton, mm. some of the Tim Burton stuff, which you are not allowed to take pictures of any of those. Um, wow, Tim Burton, a little bit, a little bit controlling. Yeah, we, like come on, Tim. it was like you. Those were the like three things you couldn't take any pictures of. Was the Tim Burton Dang. stuff? Uh, but well, I did get a picture okay, with Tim Burton, um, Mr. Fox. So, hey, that's the thing I would care about most too. So you got, I think yeah, it was that very exciting. Was the right choice. It was very fun. I was like, oh my god. Meeting so, a celebrity, oh my word. Yeah, gosh, it's a celebrity, <laughs> Mr. Fox, voiced by George Clooney. Oh, man. Um. Lastly, before we do an ad break here, favorite needle drop. This movie always has more needle drops than I think I expect. I think Moonrise Kingdom, uh, Moonrise Kingdom is where he stops doing more needle drops. But I think because this is like kind of I see as like start of a new part of his career i always assume this is when he stops doing a lot of needle drops but there are a few um there's like four three or four um and i think my favorite is the last one in the supermarket the letter dance one even though the heroes and villains is a very good needle drop but i really like the ending scene in the supermarket yeah the Uh, ending scene's great great. um i think i like the beach boys one the heroes and villains the first one yeah that was like the first time I noticed like what a needle drop was in a movie because like it wasn't when I was watching the movie, but I heard that song like after I'd seen the movie uh-huh. and then I like put it together like, wow, wait, that's the song from the beginning of that movie. And like that was the first time that's like the song that made me aware of needle drops, I think. Um, that's wow. exciting. You know that supermarket scene was the original ending for the book, actually. Oh, really? Because he got like all the manuscripts, I yeah. guess from Roald Dahl and they wrote it in his house. So yeah, I thought that was cool. Cause I yeah, think that is really cool. Actually. It's obvious. They added a lot of stuff, you know, cause of the book, but I think they really did want to keep it to as true as like what they would have thought that yeah. he would have wrote. So that's cool. Yeah. That's, that's really sweet. Yeah. That's so, that, I, I just wish he could have seen this movie. Cause I know he always yeah, liked it and likes I a think, lot of the movies. I think he would have loved it. I mean, I don't yeah, know Roald Dahl, but I feel like he would have loved it. His wife said he would have loved it, so I trust his wife. You know, she knows yeah, him better she than me. Know. She would know. Yeah, well, <laughs> you would think. <laughs> <laughs> I... Hey, who's to say? Who's to say? <laughs> um... <laughs> Maybe it's time to go to a quick ad break. 
And then when we come back, we'll be talking about Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay, so this is now we're going to be talking about Moonrise Kingdom, which came out three years later. Wow. Um, as wait, Dar- Darjeeling was seven, so it only took two years to make Mr. Fox. That's wild, actually. Well, they probably already had like some stuff in production yeah, for true. it, I would imagine. Um, but it took four years to make Isle of Dogs, which is why I was like thinking, like, wow, it's crazy. But yeah, let's get into this one. I'll read this quick summary here, uh, and then we'll get into it. I haven't read I haven't read the summary in like a few months because I wrote this for something else. So we'll see how this look. We'll see how this is. Twelve-year-old Susie Bishop lives on a New England island with her attorney parents and three younger brothers. In the summer of 1964, I think it's five, so I think that's a mistake. 1965. While starring in a oh no, because it's a year earlier. Look at me trying to correct myself. 19 it is 1964, while starring in a church production of Noise Flood. She meets Sam Shikusky, a khaki scout who is attending the play with his fellow scouts and scoutmaster. Over the next year, see, then it's a year later, the two send letters back and forth before finally making plans to leave their terrible lives behind and run away together. Will Sam and Susie be allowed to live alone in their fantasy world forever, or will the real world be too fast to outrun? Who will know? No one knows. Um, And only me, probably don't even know at the end of the movie. Um... (laughs) But, you know, it's a question you can ask. Yeah, so you said this was the first one you watched, right? It's the first one I, I remember watching. You remember. Like, that yeah, I have right. it in my brain that The I first watched. one you were conscious for. <laughs> yeah. Um, I watched this, I think, in, like, 2014 or 2015 hmm. um, because it was on Netflix. And I remember watching it on my laptop, my MacBook Pro, my old MacBook Pro, in mm. my bedroom in high school. So, and it was one of the first movie. Like, I was pretty into, like, I did a lot of camera work and video stuff mm. in high school, like 2014, 2015. And so this was kind of around that time that I was, like, really getting into, like, the technicality of film. And, like, caring about films more than, like, I think that film is cool. And so... I love this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Woo! Um, but I... <laughs> hey, <laughs> but same I, year. You know, what a year for film. Amazing Spider-Man and Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. Back to back. Same year. Yeah, so I watched it and remember, like, thinking how good it was. And this... For a while was one of my favorite, like in my top three or five or whatever mm-hmm. favorite movies for many years until I watched some other movies that I liked better. But until I watched Amazing Spider-Man until too, I watched, yeah, blew Amazing it out Spider-Man of the water too. Um, but yeah, so this was always a movie that like as I as I was getting into film, like was kind of one that I watched that I I knew was a good film. Like when I watched mm. it, I understood that it was a technically good film, I guess. <laughs> yes, that makes sense. Um, I don't know what that would, maybe that would be this for me too. I mean, I think that's like, there's never, I don't think maybe one movie, but yeah, there, I can maybe think of a couple that would be that. Anyway, 
I could talk about it now. Um, yeah, I think I watched it around the same time. I was younger because I'm younger than you. But yeah, 14, 15. Yeah, and I remember watching it pretty vividly on my couch, not on a MacBook. Yeah, I really, I think similarly, maybe like the technical thing, not because I I, I was like 14, 15. So I maybe wasn't thinking super deep about like the technical aspects, you know? But it was one of the first movies where like, uh, well, one, I realized like, oh, this is what I like watching. I, I think when you are younger and you're watching movies, like you don't totally know why you like a movie, you know, mm-hmm. or you're not really picking up on a on. Oh, this movie is different because it's doing this. Um, But with this movie, like, I think it was the first time I was aware that like there was something else mm-hmm. like that was different about this, that like there's there's something that this movie's doing that other movies did not do that uh, i watched the before. vibes spoke to you <laughs> yeah yeah well even in just like the camera movements too um and like the colors um and i think it's interesting too because well th- it's a weird thing for me to say like the first time i was ever saw myself on screen because i don't think it's not really that what it means because like obviously i've seen myself on screen many times um but i think Maybe in like a different way. It was like the first time where I saw like the way that I think in a lot of this movie or like the I really connected to like a part of it where it's like I understood the movie in a different way than I think maybe something else. And so it was the first time I maybe saw like things that I liked or like ideas that I had represented on screen, maybe not specifically like me as a person. Even though I think a lot of the themes that it tackles were things that like really spoke to me. Sure. Um, at the time. And I think too, like, even though they're twelve in the movie, I do think it's better to watch this movie when you're a couple years older. Because yeah. a lot of it I think is more about the reminiscing, especially because it ends with them a year or two later. And so I think a lot of it is maybe about looking back more than it is about the moment. So I think that I actually watch it at a good age too, like 15, 14, 15. Yeah. So it's interesting that even though we are different ages, like it for different reasons, it was a, like a Im- really important movie in our lives. And I think maybe I've seen a lot of people say that too, like some other people, because it is definitely not like a kid's movie, but it's more, it's PG-13. I think it's his first PG-13 movie. So a lot more younger people had access to watching it, you know, mm-hmm. and it it is very stylistically strong and different. So I think if you do watch this at a younger age, like you're going to notice that, oh, this is a different kind of movie. So it it does have that effect on a lot of people, I think, where like if you watch this when it came out, then it's like, oh, wow, dang, this is crazy. I've never seen this done before. Oh, my gosh. Did you watch the have you've watched the like making of on the Criterion? I did. I did. This movie has a cra- so many cool little tidbits about the making of. Yeah. So there was this thing that I laughed at in it where they were filming the scene um, uh, in the camp, like the main, the, the main camp where it's raining. And right after the scene is filmed, he's like shaking some of the kids' hands that were like extras in that. <laughs> and one of the kids was like... I loved Fantastic Mr. Fox. I saw, I saw that. I was dying. I was like, this this kid. It's like he 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 knew it was his moment. Like I have to. Yeah, man, he just. This is like, my favorite. I love director. Fantastic Mr. Fox. I was like, wow, that is so cute, and he was so nice with them. Yeah, but I think that's like for that kid too. Like you know, that's a. I think Fantastic Mr. Fox can also be an influential movie in that way. Yeah, you know? I agree. Um, 
Wow. I hope that kid's doing well. I hope he's having a great life. <laughs> yeah, this is a great uh, movie. I watched it. I hadn't watched it in a while, actually. Like, when I rewatched all the Wes Anderson movies, I actually don't think I watched it then. Because I think it was one of those things where, like, I just was scared to watch it. Like, you thought you were going to hate it. Well, I didn't think that. But I, like, I don't know. I know what you mean, though. Like, when you have such memories attached to something. Yeah, it was so important at a specific time in my life that I almost just wanted to leave it there. Kind of like the characters leave the the (laughs) island in the past, you know? It's very metaphorical. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you just want it to exist in that space and not have Mm. anything else. Like, I don't know. Like, I didn't know... If I wanted it to be in my space now, mm. like even though you had bought the Blu-ray, you're like maybe even I'll just though never I had bought the, the Blu-ray, <laughs> maybe I'll never watch this and I'll just um, hold on to it. No, yeah. but I did watch it uh, this week with or last night actually with my dad, which was funny. Um, but yeah, but just talking about the movie itself, I guess more. You were talking about the making of. I think well, this is. The first Wes Anderson movies for a lot of things, because again, this is right after Mr. Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he took obviously, like we said, a lot of stuff from that. So this uses miniatures, which is the first yeah. time I think he used those in a live action movie. Um, which is like, did you watch the ones where like they filmed like the water bursting? Yeah, like that was crazy. I don't know, that was wild to me because I don't think I ever knew that that was a miniature. Yeah, because was- I can you can tell some stuff, but that one I was not aware. It was really interesting because, like, I watched all the Grand Budapest special features before I did all the Moonrise Kingdom stuff because I watched that earlier in the week. And so he used a lot of miniatures in that, which I knew. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to see then looking at this and the, like, featurette with the miniatures, Mm -hmm. um, like, seeing how he started it here and then, like, perfected it more in Budapest. Or was able to utilize it more in Budapest. So it's kind of cool to see that like progression once I like mm. realized those were miniatures of like maybe using what worked or didn't work. Um, but in that sense, like with the miniatures and in the other behind the scenes, like with the other stuff, just the way that they use he chooses to use practical effects is what I, I think it. is so great. Because like all that obviously, but then like the way they did the rain, um, like practically and then um like moving the bow and like yeah, all which that works stuff. for a lot for kids too like for kid for child actor that's crucial too yeah like, so it just it's helps. really cool um again like not that you can't use cgi or can't use vfx for things because i do think that has its own place but it's always cool when directors want to like seek mm-hmm. out the practical opposed to the like I don't know, the computer-generated stuff. Well, and I think with the miniatures, and they built a lot of sets for this movie, like, they built yeah. a lot, like, the the sets of the home in a old linen and things. Remember linen and things? Did that? I don't think they have those anymore. Um, But they built the sets for the house and that. And I think, well, obviously, with stop motion, you are just building sets, and that's how you're kind of making the movie. So it's interesting, like, in this movie, I think he definitely did that a lot more, where, like, you're just, you have a set, and you're kind of piecing stuff together. You do, like so because in Tenenbaums, like he had basically the whole house was used. Like they didn't use other rooms. But I think as his career goes, like he's definitely figuring out more how to like 
piece stuff together like this room doesn't have to be connected to this room mm. in real life as long as i can make it look like it is than it is like in the movie you know what i mean sure so it's definitely a lot more of a seamless world that way because he can like make everything the way he wants it to be rather than relying on the way that it is in real life like oh well the house is set up like this so i guess we have to have the living room here he can like make another living room set and kind of like put those scenes together like it's just I think that really helps the continuity in everything feeling like a real different world rather than like a stranger version of our world. Because even though this is set in on Earth, it feels a lot more otherworldly than like Royal Tenenbaums. Like it feels like like an alternate reality to ours. Like it feels like our world, but in a different multiverse. (laughs) Oh, the the Wes Anderson multiverse. Wow. Can but it you does. Imagine? I mean, it really like and it all goes back to control is like he truly is an artist of his craft and like he has his vision and he wants it to be executed in the way yeah. he wants it to be done. And so yeah. it's cool that like he does that and includes that in his budget. And like he does scout things out, obviously, but at the same time, like he's able to use things how he wants them and builds how they wants them for Especially because of, like, how he moves the camera and stuff and how that's such a signature style, his camera movement. So, like, building those sets to, like, I guess enhance the style mm-hmm. as well is a big aspect. Yeah. And another thing that I he took, which in Budapest, like, again, it all really builds from Fantastic Mr. Fox yeah. to Budapest. Which is why, we, you know, it's almost like we kind of segmented the episode. Uh, yeah, it's almost like uh, <laughs> we planned. Uh, it's almost for that. like we're like Wes Anderson and planning our episodes perfectly the way we want oh them constructed. Oh my gosh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but so Fantastic Mr. Fox, because it's animated, obviously has an animated storyboard. But then, which you don't use animated storyboards for live action movies usually, but he did make an animated storyboard for this, like animatic is what it's called. And so that I think also played a huge role because like he said, he said this so many times in commentaries, like it almost got tiring. Like he said the same thing where it's like, it just helps them be able to plan out what they want to do before they even get on to set. Uh Um, And even like, I know that he, like he reads the lines in them as well. So then sometimes I'll give them to actors so they can like hear the tone or the delivery that he's looking for, which again is like just another thing of like that, learning different ways to control or like plan ahead for different things um which also like really i think is a good way that he keeps his budgets low Mm. because life aquatic like 50 million shooting on a boat in the middle of the ocean like that's gonna that's not something you can really plan for very well but with all this planning ahead of the animatics and like building stuff to be the way like i think it's just a more efficient way to make a movie too which, like, I'm surprised that more directors, because that just seems like a smart idea, like, to make animated storyboards. You can just plan exactly how you want your camera movements with your cinematographer. Like, that just sounds smart to me. Sounds like a good idea. And it's fun on the Blu-rays because you can watch the animatics, too. Yeah, and it's like, can. wow, that's pretty much that's pretty much what the movie is right there. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, it's cool because I think, like, when you have someone who has such a distinct style as he does... Mm. You almost have to do that if, like, you really want... Because his style, like, obviously there's a lot of directors that have distinct styles, but so much of his style comes from the technical aspects, not from, like, the story and stuff. I mean, it does come from the story, 
But like the reason his style is so distinct is because of the technical aspects. And those are all things that like really need to be pre-planned if you're going to be having like that same exact style across your movies, basically. Yeah, it just makes sense to me. Yeah, like that he would want it like when I saw those, I wasn't surprised. I was like, oh, that. Yeah, because I think when you watch the movie, you're like, how do you coordinate this? But like, that's the way you have to do it. You have to plan it so specifically before you even get to the set. Basically, like when you're writing the script, I'm imagining pretty soon after you have to like start imagining that. Yeah, a, a couple a couple little things. So one thing I thought was interesting, which I think makes this movie we, we can move on because it's not recording a while, but they used a smaller camera on this because of the ease of movement, which I think when I knew that I definitely saw it in like some of the, what, the mm. scenes in the forest. Yeah, but also with because it's lower, they hold it lower. It's able to get at eye level with all of the child actors, which I think is really smart because I think that really makes them the center of the movie rather than because I think in even when movies focus on kids, it can still sometimes feel like the adults are the main characters. Mm. Um, but I think that's one like really like clever way that they make it focused on the kids and then the adults are secondary that because sure. the film is on their level rather than like they're having to get to the level of the adults, which is kind of what the movie's about. Um, yeah, I think this is also interesting because it's like we said the first time he explored a different kind of theme. Like, I think a lot of like the main like themes of grief and like regret, you know, classic. Every movie has those pretty much. But there there's a lot of different things going on and there isn't that central adult male character that is like kind of which ha all like I said, all of his other movies have, which gives us a lot more of a fresh feel, I think. Um, in this, when yeah. you're going through his filmography, like it's nice to have a bigger ensemble for sure. Because even in Royal Tenenbaums, I think there's like more main characters, but in this, there's like a lot of big characters that are just like in it for a, the same amount of time. Um, and it allows him to, yeah, just like talk about a lot of different things. Yeah, and I think a lot of the same. It's it's interesting the themes because. I think at this point you can tell that he has grown as a person because he's writing about a lot of the same things he always has, but it's from an entirely different perspective. And so you can almost see in the writing how like his perspective on his own life and stuff has changed as he's grown mm -hmm. as a person and as a writer, which I think is cool when you watch it in context with like after having just watched Rushmore or Tenenbaums mm. where you're seeing some of the similar things kind of in the movies but this is from like a more i don't know it feels like a more mature perspective um or a more like like a more reconciled perspective with his childhood mm. rather than mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of his earlier work it almost feels still very like broken about it or you can almost see that there's like still grief and cracks in there that are like healing in yeah. the way he writes um, but I and maybe it's also too he's changed writing partners and stuff like that um, throughout the yeah, years. No, I think you're right, though. I mean, because this movie was really inspired. It was inspired by Roman Coppola a little bit, too, because he co-wrote it. But Wes started the story and started the script. Um, and it was inspired by, I think, a lot of his life at 12. So his parents were going through a divorce at that age. He was a Boy Scout or a Scout. I don't know, like, which kind of Scout. He was in a production of that play, The Noise Flood. 
And he also like that whole thing with Susie finding like the troubled child book. That was something that happened to him mm. too, where like he found his that book that his parents had. So I think like the personal depth to it is a lot more mature, like you said, and like he actually has more perspective on it, I think, rather than like just get like it feels like even though I love like Rushmore and everything, it feels in those movies he's definitely more like just spitting them out and like getting it out there. But here it's like he knows more, I guess, what it means. Yeah, to him. those movies feel more adolescent. Like when you look at him in context of his career, the writing feels like it's written by someone who's younger, who's like trying to come to terms or reconcile different parts of his life or different themes throughout his life, yeah. things like that, things that he or feels and thinks. figure out who he is, yeah. And I think at this point, maybe Mr. Fox was sort of a transition of that Mm. Um, but that now, like, you can really tell he has his footing and, like, he knows what he thinks about things. He knows who he is in the context of the stories and where he's putting himself into characters. And I feel like it feels like, um, even though this is, and Fox is a kid's movie in a way, like, I know that this yeah. isn't necessarily a kid's movie, but it's a coming of age story that many kids and teenagers probably have watched. Yeah. Like, it feels like an adult perspective on a coming-of-age story, I guess. And I think Budapest will be the same way when we talk about that. I mean, this is one of my, like, top movies. Um, but I think even the subjectively, it is maybe his best... I think it's really hard. I think Grand Budapest is technically his best movie. But I think this is his most successful movie, just, like, o overall. Because I think mm. the themes are the most potent here. And it's, like, the best mix of like the comedy and drama sometimes in his movies i think that can feel a little bit like whiplashy the tonal shifts but i think in this movie it's very well constructed the dialogue is all just like where it needs to be the art direction is all there i love the 16 millimeter i think that looks really good uh yeah this is to me i mean his best movie but i think like we'll see he definitely still has other ways he can expand what he wants to do as his career goes on. Um, and I think it's good too that this is a bit of a smaller story because at the next three movies that he makes that we'll talk about are a lot bigger in scope. But I think this was good to keep it in that small. I think I like that it's just on the island and it is more smaller scale. Mm, uh, yeah. Oh, I, okay. And the last thing I wanted to say too, which will kind of lead, I guess, into Grand Budapest. So that works. But even though, like we said, like the themes are really good in this movie and mr fox and like they i really like looking at that from that angle i really appreciate that i mean when he talks about his movies he really he'll focus on two things he'll focus on like in the commentaries or he'll talk about technical aspects like all day and he'll talk about like plot elements but he doesn't really talk much about any thematic elements uh very few because i've read interviews about all of his movies because i have those books i've watched like he never talks about his the thematic elements and i think that really what it shows one that like he really loves the story he really wants to tell good stories um but also like it's important not to show your hand too much you know i don't i like it more when directors are more like let's let the movie speak for itself and you don't always have to like act like so high and mighty like look at all of the themes that i explored in my film i don't know i just like that he f puts the focus more on just like the movie and lets it speak for himself rather than like expounding upon his thoughts you know 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which we'll see, I think, in the Grand Budapest, where, like, that is very story-heavy. And, like, I I think that's, like, his most plot-heavy movie, but it's a good plot, so there you go. Um, Quick mention, too, he didn't make a short film between Budapest and Moon Ice Kingdom. Uh, Castello Cavalcanti, maybe? This is for Prada. So he made like a little perfume ad with Roman Coppola for Prada, but this is more just like a ad, um, a short film that was sponsored by Prada. There's not really any product placement except for like the uniform. I I don't really, I try, I've tried to think of like something that this like adds to his career, but I don't know. It just seems, it's kind of like a little fun thing. Um, but I do think, you know, there we go. I got something. Um, it is more European focused where Fantastic Mr. Fox and Moonrise Kingdom. I mean, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I assume, is set in America or like maybe the the United Kingdom. Um, but those are definitely less European driven, which I think helps because now in Budapest, he's diving right back into Europe. So maybe that's like this. It, it's very Italian inspired, this short film. So that's maybe the transition. We're like getting back into the European setting, which now and now we go to Grand Budapest Hotel. This is just like Europe, everything. So mm-hmm. which makes sense because he now like basically lives in Europe and he so that makes sense why he would be more inspired by that stuff. Um, Do you want to read this quick summary we have here for? I would love Grand to. Budapest? OK, it's a long. It is long. <laughs> this Well, this is such the plot of this movie is, is a lot. Yeah, there's on, a lot so. going on. Um, okay, Zero Mustafa is a lobby boy at the Grand Budapest Hotel, working under the establishment's eccentric concierge, Monsieur Gustave H. Um, when <laughs> <laughs> Madame D, an 84-year-old frequent guest of the Grand Budapest, dies, Monsieur Gustave travels to her estate to hear the reading of the will, bringing along Zero to assist him. At the reading, it is discovered that Madame D left the famous Renaissance painting Boy with Apple to Monsieur Gustave instead of to any of her family members. The family is outraged at this discovery and demands for Gustave's arrest before he and Zero manage to narrowly escape painting in tow. However, the greedy relatives won't give up that easily, willing to go to any length to take Boy with Apple for themselves. I had to go and I and I had to go four storylines down to get to this plot summary. So, you know, <laughs> even then I had to skip past four four time periods. No, three time periods. This is the fourth down. Um yeah, this is I mean, I think now his most famous popular movie. It's his most successful movie. It had a 147 million profit. Um only 25 million dollar budget for this, which is like insane when yeah. you watch it. Like, that's crazy, which we'll talk about. But yeah, I think before this is Lieutenant Bombs, but now I think this is what most people would be familiar with, I think, if you brought up Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine Oscars. And it won for Best Costume Design, Makeup and Hairstyling, Original Score, and Production Design. So yeah, like this is definitely his most successful movie to date. And I think it makes sense because it combines a lot of the stuff that he's kind of been working with yeah for his whole career and especially the last two previous two movies yeah it feels like everything is building up to this like in the past two movies like as you watch them all three kind of back to back and read about them or listen to the commentaries 
Like, you can sort of see how everything he's done in the past, too, even though those were, like, passion projects for him, it feels like, built up to making this one. And, like, because everything he did from those, he used in this. And so it's Mm. cool just to see, like, the way that technically this movie came together, like, including things he tried in both Fox and in Moonrise, and even in maybe, like, Tenenbaums. Well, yeah, in Tenenbaums, they wanted to shoot in 1.37 because of the house, like, getting the height of the buildings. Sure. So Eve, it goes all the way back from there, like, wanting to experiment with the different aspect ratios and stuff. Yeah, and I think at this point, like, once he sort of got past the hump of aquatic and Darjeeling kind of being box office failures, I feel like he was able with Fox and Moonrise to maybe experiment a little more with a couple things and sort of release himself from the failures of those movies. And I feel Mm. like this is fully like, I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want and it's going to be cool. And so that is how I feel like this movie is. And I love it. It's very, very fun. Mm. I watched it twice this week, actually. Yeah, it's a great movie. Um, and there's so many awesome things about it that we can get into. But like, yeah, it's really fun. I don't know when the first time I saw this was. It was definitely at home, like not in theaters. I wish I would have saw this in theaters. Um, but yeah, I really don't have anything many maybe personal about this one to share. But uh, I definitely know that like I knew the iconography of the hotel before I watched this movie because I think that poster is pretty famous so like and it sticks with you too the hotel from the 30s in that poster like that's definitely an image that sticks with you yeah i don't know when i watched this for the first time but maybe 17 18 i'm not sure yeah i don't know yeah so great personal anecdotes really killing it uh yeah let's get oh also moonrise kingdom favorite needle drop there's no needle drops so there's one needle drop so i guess that's my favorite but if i could pick <laughs> one I like the Benjamin Britt because it's all built around Benjamin Britten music. Yeah. Um. So I like the last one, the cuckoo. It's called. It actually mm. plays once in the bottom of the ship, and then again at the end. And I love that song. Anyway, fast forward back to Grand Budapest Hotel, um, which doesn't have any needle drops, literally. So guess we will be skipping that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> again, this is when he kind of stops, which I think we can maybe use that. It's like. Like you said, I think he definitely is doing everything he wants to do. But I also think he's very he's gotten very good at like knowing what a movie needs. Mm. And this movie would just not work with the kink song. Like I just wouldn't. So like, you know, maybe if he had made this in 2006, he would have been like, eh, we can put a kink song in here. We can put a Rolling Stones song when they're doing the escape. But I think like even though it's very much like his movie, it all feels like within the the world the movie's creating. Um, and like we said, like being able to create that perfect world to tell your story in. Yeah. Which this is like literally, it, it's interesting because this is like the first time too he explores like any political things. But it's like it is set in Europe, but it's like a fictional version of Europe with a different, like with a different war. Like that's not World War One or Two. It's just like a completely different war, but still about fascism. Different country different places they talk so it is like literally like a movie world rather than maybe even moonrise kingdom which is like a movie island i guess but this is like a movie continent i get maybe 
Yeah, which this is, I think, too. Yeah, where I, you, I, it, maybe even so far his best world that he's made. I would yeah, think. I think so. What do you think about the Russian nesting doll <laughs> aspect of the story? Well, that's what people call it. I don't really know why they call. It. I guess it makes sense, but I think that's one thing that maybe sets it apart than if you had just been like, if it was just like a fun movie, because I think that does add a lot to what he, what the movie may be trying to say, but also it's just really interesting, like watching it go through the different aspect ratio changes. Um, sure. So what do you think about like those scenes and how they lead to the main story? I mean, I think it's cool. Uh, he talked about it a little bit in the commentary. The commentary was very chaotic, so there wasn't a lot of actual information His commentaries on. are so chaotic, <laughs> especially the Moonrise Kingdom one. Anyone that has the Moonrise Kingdom criterion needs to listen to. Yeah, the I was gonna watch it to, or listen to it today, and just please, didn't get a chance, please but, do. It um, is so funny, but yeah, continue. But yeah, he talked about it a little bit, um, and how like you know they changed. You know, a lot of people notice like the aspect ratio or whatever, but like he was talking about the different things, like the soldiers' uniforms, how they changed. Mm. And kind of those different black, aspects yeah. too, yeah. Which I thought is really interesting um, and very creative. I think. I think maybe some people would be like, "Oh, it's too much." Like he's just trying to be fancy. Um, but I think that it's <laughs> it's such an interesting way to tell a story in that way. Like when you are hmm. trying to show like different things throughout. Like, to be able to change those aspects to be able to better tell the story, which I think just shows his ability to tell a story with technical aspects. Because I think a lot of directors or filmmakers or even writer-directors don't think about those technical aspects as much or aren't as involved in those kind of choices. So his ability to, like... I don't know, have the technical work in tandem with the writing to tell the story, I think is really cool. And I think that this movie pretty much like masters that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Everything is working together to tell the story rather than it's like, this is this this is like the Rushmore, like in Rushmore, like this is the graduate, but in like my style. Right. Where like the style is not just like for fun, like it plays a part in the story. Um, especially, yeah, and, like, how the hotel is, like, this picturesque place. And also, like, how it's about stories and, like, people are reminiscing on the past, how it's, like, more perfect than maybe it was. The, the style is maybe just how they remember. Maybe the Grand Budapest Hotel wasn't, like, that pink, but, like, he remembers pink, and so it's a lot of pink. And, yeah, and even, like, how the lobby changes from the 30s and then to after the war in the 60s and like mm -hmm. how the war affected the hotel and like it still looks like his style but like it's a completely different art direction for that lobby in that hotel so yeah like you said it's very a lot of this movie is the the architecture and the style is just like a very rich part of the story um i also think this is his so far best ensemble group or like in the most they fit together again and i think um like you were saying he likes the collaboration and he also i he's i've he said he likes when people stay on set and like how it's like almost like 
a theater troupe kind of thing, I've heard a lot of people say. And in this movie, they all stayed in the same hotel and they all did their wardrobe fittings and makeup in the ho- that hotel lobby. So like, I think in Moonrise Kingdom, they may have all stayed in like around the same way. So like he doesn't have like trailers. But I think you can really feel that in this one where the cast all feels like really of the world and all really like interconnected and they yeah i just think this is the best that he's executed on ensemble yeah i i think i would agree yeah and i love i think this is like the great additions like bringing back jeff goldblum and willem dafoe um willem dafoe is awesome in this movie he is so funny. <laughs> i love willem dafoe he's so funny he's so good in everything he's in he is do you know that harvey keitel and so him and like the rest of the prisoner escapees besides rafe fine I don't think. Uh, but they stayed overnight in that prison cell for two days I, um, to establish they said bonds. That. They said that in the commentary. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That is so funny. Yeah, they talked a lot about in the commentary about like how much time they all hung out together. And they were like, Love oh, it. yeah. Remember when we went down to that bar, that like bar in Budapest and they're like talking about this like bar that they spent like 10 minutes talking about this like bar they went to. When listening to the commentaries and stuff, it's so obvious why people keep working with him because it's like, yeah, it just seems like really fun. I think one thing that's interesting about the ensemble, too, is like, obviously, he uses so many different characters and different things, but it doesn't feel like any of the characters aren't supposed to be there. Like, especially Mm. in this one, in all the different like sequences it feels like every character is a character that he, like, cares about being in the story and understands why they're in the story mm-hmm. and, like, the purpose they serve, which I think can be hard for, like, when you have that big of an ensemble in something. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something he does very well, like, even in other, like, bigger ensemble movies, too, that he has, like, Dispatch. Um, but it's cool that he cares so much about the people that play the characters, too, because, like, mm-hmm. in the commentary he's like talking about you know tony and shersha and like saying all this stuff and he's like oh like they were so great and like Mm -hmm. we didn't know like who we were looking for and then we found him and we were like oh no he's perfect this is who we need i wonder if he's watched spider-man do you think he's watched spider-man for him yeah i feel like i would love to i would like to know his thoughts on his Spider-Man ranking of the 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 Marvel the MCU Spider-Man, you know, that'd be interesting. <laughs> um, but it's it's just really cool how much he seems to like, you know. I said it earlier, but like care about the people he collaborates with too. That for him, making a film is not just about making the film. Like he cares about all the aspects that go into making the film, and I think that in a movie like this, especially you can tell like it translates through the work how important all the different aspects of making the film are mm. speaking of constant collaborators we haven't talked at all about well we you mentioned the score a little bit in passing for oh. but we haven't really talked about any of the scores um for many of these these movies so i it's in, important to note that i don't actually don't think in darjeeling because that's mostly all indian old like cinema music but Mark Mothersbaugh was before Mr. Fox, his only composer that he'd worked with. Mm-hmm. And then he was going to work with him again in Mr. Fox. But I think he was Mark Mothersbaugh, that is, was a, like a, in the middle of adopting a child. And so oh. like oh. he was like not it, like he, he would have, have had to go to Paris, you know, 
to work with them and like didn't want to leave. So that makes sense, you know. Oh, that's, smart. that's so. Sweet. So then they got Alexandra Desplat for Fantastic Mr. Fox, and now that's the only composer he's worked with since then. And I think that's another yeah. thing that you'll see through these movies, um, these three, and then like because Alexander Desplat, well, Mark Mothersbaugh is a very specific composer, and he makes very s- specific kind of scores. But Alexander Desplat is very moldable to his movies. If you listen to his scores, they all fit the movie. Like the instrument, he'll pick very specific instruments for each movie, very specific yeah. melodies. Like you listen to interviews or like read, like he's crazy the level of detail they go to. So I think that also does a lot to make the movie world because you watch like we keep going back to like Rushmore World Tunnel. So like those kind of movies. And I think the scores in those movies definitely, again, like you maybe you were saying with the production design, they don't fit as well with the story. It's like part of the style is one thing and the story is the other thing. But with these scores, each all three of them and then even in Isle of Dogs, I think he did the score for Isle of Dogs, maybe not, but definitely French Dispatch. Um, those feel like scores that go with the story. Um, and especially in Grand Budapest, like this score, it won best score, is a great score. And I think if Mike Mark Mothersbaugh has scored this, I'm sure the music itself would have been good, but I don't think it would have worked as well for the movie because that's just not the kind of composer he is. But Alexander Despot, like the score in this is so perfect for the scene. And even though yeah. it does mix some old music too, but it all feels like the same. You know, like there's no for me in this score when I listen to the soundtrack, there's no difference between some of the older songs that they use, like even the opening yodeling, which is a great opening. Um, But like that feels like just part of the score. Like that could have been something that he composed. So I really think that that's an underrated aspect of his second half of his career was Alexander Desplat's scores really like help create the worlds of the movies even more. Yeah, Audibly, I guess. Yeah, I think it just again shows that like uh, how Wes Anderson now, like everything ties together so well. Like mm. everything in his movies is so intentional and so intricately weaved together. And I think, like you said, you can see the distinction between the early work and the newer work. Like. Not that the earlier stuff isn't as good, but as he's learned all these different things and and understood, I think, how he likes to make movies and what works and doesn't work throughout his career, he's been able to really establish all the good things. And so now at this point in his career, he knows what he wants. And so... It's really cool to see like that build up, especially in the past with the past two movies. But, like, with the score and with those things, like, how they all just feel so Wes Anderson that, like, Mm. it feels like at this point, I mean, on TikTok and stuff like that, like, if you hear a score that's, like, similar or uses any of the same kind of elements. Yeah, you sent me one, like, recently. I sent you one. There was, like, three comments that were, like, Wes Anderson music. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's very, and even with, like, symmetry, like, Wes Anderson didn't invent symmetry, but, like... People see someone sitting in the middle of the screen and they're like, oh, my God, Wes Anderson. And it's like, no, that's just (laughs) simple um, camera. But like all those different things are like outfits, you know, um, like the color pink, the color yellow. You use yellow text on a screen and people are like, "Ooh, Wes Anderson. And it's like, (laughs) I don't know. Like, it's just really cool. It's so funny. 
how much he has made things a part of who he is, but also a part yeah. of the way that he makes films. Uh, and I think that's very exciting. And it's been even more exciting as we've like watched through everything because I think it's allowed me to see it all in the progression of his career to build up to this. And I think that this one, like you said, is is probably like his best te- technical work. Um, but definitely the one that I think most accentuates everything about his style and the way that he makes movies, which is really cool. Mm. No, that's definitely right. Like we were saying with Moonrise Kingdom, how the sets were kind of differently made than his other movies. Mm. And this is even crazier, like how they made the train compartment set is actually two different sets. The 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 main part of it is like was it in the lobby as they made that set, but then they also shot outside with for like the window scenes and then they superimposed mm. that window into the like it's crazy like yeah. the piece putting those pieces together where like three movies ago he literally bought like a, or rented a whole train to make his movie <laughs> on and he was confined to the way the train was made but now he's using like three different sets or like three different pieces to put the train compartment well, together this it, one compartment what was really funny which you may know this about grand budapest have you listened to the commentary for him budapest at all i think i listened i listened to like half of it i was very tired last night yeah. i'll finish it tonight so but when they were talking about the bathhouses how they like mm, i did yeah, literally yeah. were not like they didn't even have a location for the bathhouses and then they're just <laughs> like oh what are well, i wonder what that building is and they like go over and it's like a bathhouse and they're like Wow, an abandoned bathhouse. Perfect. Um, And it's just so funny that like, I don't know, like it's really, it feels really organic and authentic the way that he makes movies that it's not like, I don't know, obviously he does and builds a lot and stuff, but it feels like he really, in the way that he works is also very down to earth with being able to just use what he can use. So like he has all these intricate things, but then at the same time, it's like, oh, we found this random bathhouse. Okay, I guess we'll use that and fix it up. Like, it just feels like he, even though everything is so meticulously planned, that he also just rolls with the punches and is like, great, cool. Like, this fits the vision. Let's go for it. Like, I don't know. If he feels like a person that just feels very cool and chill and like... Just vibing. I don't know. know? I can't imagine him. I, I don't know him, obviously. But I can't we imagine do, him ever. That's, the last episode will be an interview with Wes Anderson. <laughs> yes, wow, <Thank. laughs> our favorite guy. Um, but our he friend. he just he doesn't feel like someone that would ever yell at you or make you feel stupid or mm. silly for saying certain things. Like it feels like he just I don't know. Like he just seems really nice, and I feel like he just <laughs> yeah. seems like. No, a I good... know what you're saying. Well, it just seems like like you said the collaborative the collaborative thing. I think is a big aspect because i think so many movies directors are like the people that you would assume as like auteurs i guess like i i think a lot of people ascribe auteur theory like him as an auteur like theory person but i don't think that that's what he would describe himself as mm. like i in watching those commentaries and everything, like it definitely feels very like you said collaborative and like how movies were meant to be made, you know, especially with the practical effects things. That's what I felt like watching the behind the scenes of Grand Budapest. Like this is how movies should be made. Like the collaborative stuff. Yeah. Like this is why movies were invented, basically. Yeah, and I feel like when you talk about like auteurs, you think of like, I don't know, like Orson Welles or someone like that. 
or like Kubrick who are like mean people and like you think of these guys who are usually white cis males and you think of them being like I don't know those old Hollywood days with those kind of people you think oh well they have to be a certain way to get a good product and so obviously it doesn't matter that they're mean or that they like totally terrorized their you know lead actress because like they got they needed to do it to get the art Mm. and i think wes anderson just proves that like you can be that kind of director and like get the product that is hailed as like this crazy cinematic masterpiece and be like the head of i don't know Mm. this specific style of indie cinema and indie art yeah. And not be a shitty person. Which is, yeah, ironic because, like, he does say, like, his favorite movies are, like, uh, like Kubrick and, like, Polanski movies, which is, like, those are, like, they are terrible directors that and did that terrible to get people, great yeah. movies. Awful and people. terrible people. And, like, I know that there's, you know, I'm not the person to comment on whether or not his movies are white-centric. Um, That's not... No, yeah, I think we can get that into that more too in this, like maybe at the end of this and then definitely next episode too. Yeah, I think it'll come up more more in the next episode for sure and we'll have more time in that one. But I do think that like, I mean, those things are there and I understand that there are those aspects of his career um, and in the way that he has had maybe certain racist elements or things that could come across as racist, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Um, again, it's not totally my place to comment on those, but there are some other people who are black or people of color that have like written essays mm-hmm. and stuff about it that maybe would be better to read. But I do think that like overall, he feels like a very genuine person, like or he genuinely like cares about the movie as well and like the people working on the movie. Yeah, like I said, he always mentions like the production designer by name or like the one person in the co- like. He feels like he really cares about the product and like who worked on it. Yeah, and knows the people he's working with, like all the like it yeah, it really just I mean, and even in this, like this was filmed this commentary was made in for the Criterion, right? For in twenty twenty. Yeah. And so that was five five or six years after the movie came out. And, you know, he is still talking about some of these people like, you know, he's talking about Tony being in it and he's like, oh yeah, I think he was like 17 or 16 at the time and he was like such a good kid. Like, it, <laughs> he cares about yeah. the people that he worked with yeah. or continues to work with. So it's just cool to like, I don't know, it's refreshing like I said earlier, to yeah. see a director who isn't just like a complete asshole making art. Or like a director yeah. whose art you like that you don't have to separate the artist from the art. Like, you know, obviously, like, I don't watch Woody Allen movies anymore, but, like, a lot of people might watch something and be like, oh, well, I just separate the artist Mm. from the art. And I feel like I don't have to do that with Wes Anderson. So it just makes it so much, like, less exhausting to watch his movies because it's like, I know that, I don't know, like they just feel they don't feel disingenuine to watch it and be like, oh, well, there's all this other crap going on. Yeah. And I think I mean, this is all like eerie, you know, sure. and like me reading into things. So I don't want to like feel like this is gospel. Um, But a lot of the quote unquote problematic things, I feel like I mean, he's like in his 50s. I think it feels a lot more just like he's just a little bit clueless about just some things, which, you know, makes sense. 
for a 50 year old white guy living in Paris, like very privileged, like just feels like very obvious blind spots um, or like just not thinking, which, you know, like is a lot better than I would think for some other directors that we've you kind of mentioned. Um, so like, I think in this movie, like I said, there are, this is the first time he really tackles political themes and that we'll see in the next two movies he tackles, tries to tackle. And I think he has grown. He's definitely grown. I think it's interesting that so far the three political themes he's, he's movie, he's had three movies with political themes and they really only go as far as like fascism is bad, which like true. That's very, a very true (laughs) thing to say. But it's it it is inter- it's like I think that is um one thing where it's like that can definitely get better. Um but or maybe, you know, some people just aren't meant to have over like political, overtly political messages in their movies, which is fine too. I am fine with that. I think sometimes it might be more powerful to have a human message sure. that maybe can touch can touch your heart. Um, but yeah, like a lot of those things where it's like having a lot of just white actors in his movies, I think can feel more just like you feel like you just want to keep working with the same people. And so obviously because of the way Hollywood set up, you're going to first get more white actors. Like it's just yeah. gonna be easy. And then like you keep working with the same white actors and you just kind of get stuck in a rhythm, which I'm not saying that's good or like you should do. But I think that's another example of like a blind spot where it's like, you should be working a little harder, but I can understand what that would have happened. Yeah, or like with, with the Roman his Polanski privilege and uh, stuff. Yeah. With the with the Polanski petition, like how people a lot of people that signed that have said like people just came up and like, oh, sign this petition and people sign it like maybe just don't sign petitions that you don't know what you're <laughs> signing. Like there's just a lot of things where it's like, this is not the smartest move, but also I know a lot of white people that aren't making the smartest move you have blind spots which is important to recognize yeah um, which is all privilege based so yeah and i think it's a lot easier to recognize that than to recognize like some a director that's that is a rapist like that's a a lot lot (laughs) two different things that you have to look past and i think we can talk about that in the next episode when like yeah definitely the racial stuff like it shifted a little bit i think that he still has a lot a long ways like he needs to do more yeah i think french dispatch was an interesting course correction like half course correction maybe yeah sorry i'm chewing ice (laughs) asmr i'm chewing ice all right we got it we're good anyway yeah but that's a little tease that's a little tease for the next uh episode what we'll be talking about do you want to give our rankings so far of his movies yeah minus two i guess you know and i feel like knowing how we feel about the next two movies even though i don't hate them like I feel like the top is going to remain pretty consistent, yeah, um, to say the least, in our rankings. So how have you ranked these eight movies so far? So at the bottom, I got the very, very bottom. We got Bottle Rocket. And then right above Bottle Rocket, I have Darjeeling and then Rushmore. And then in my fifth, I have Royal Tenenbaums and then Life Aquatic and then Grand Budapest and then Moonrise Kingdom, and then Fantastic Mr. Fox. Interesting. All right. Yeah, it's in- we have similar aspects, but then there's a couple that are, like, very different, but you'll see. So I have Darjeeling Limited last. Um, I already explained why I have Bottle Rocket ahead of it. I think Darjeeling Limited is, like, technically maybe a better movie, but I think Bottle Rocket has more 
heart behind it, I guess. And like, I would en- I enjoy watching it more. I'd rather rewatch Bottle Rocket. Um, then there's like a big gap to the next ranking. Um, then I have Life Aquatic. Then I have Royal Tenenbaums. Now this is tough because, like I said, I think Grand Budapest Hotel is is technically his best movie. But as of yet, I've seen it like four or five times. I don't really have like an emotional ins right now to the story. Uh, and the next three, I all have emotional ins to. So Grand Budapest Hotel is four. Um, and then Rushmore is three. Fantastic Mr. Fox is two. And Moonrise Kingdom is one. And like I said, maybe Grand Budapest Hotel like technically is a better movie than Rushmore. Like I think it's paced better. And I think maybe it's more coherent throughout thematically. But I have more of a connection when I watch Rushmore to the story than I do Grand Budapest. And sure. I think it's cool. I think that's like fair. Rushmore has some a little bit more of a punk rock vibe. And I kinda like the punk rock vibe sometimes. I can get down with that. So but I think like it's his movies are really interesting because like his early movies are a lot different than his newer movies, even though there are similarities. So it's like interesting to rank these because like Ranking Rushmore than Grand Budapest Hotel, it's like those are so different, um, even though there are similarities, like we were saying. So, yeah, but I think Moonrise and Fantastic Mr. Fox are like his masterpieces. So that sure. would be I, what I yeah. would say. And Grand Budapest Hotel is like a technical masterpiece. Like these three that we talked about today are crazy. A crazy three movie run. Yeah, literally. Is that the best three movie run of all time? <laughs> hey, we, maybe that could be our question of the week. What is the best three movie run a director's ever had that's a little my our i don't know if our listeners like to think that deeply about yeah it's so, a lot so. then you have to like look at other filmographies but yeah i those three have always been my top three um i've kind of flip-flopped on what's where like i have them all yeah. at four and a half stars right now i fantastic mr fox maybe a five star movie for me i had it at five stars i rated it four and a half like three watches in a row in this last one i was just like there's literally nothing about this movie well, I would change. And so I, I even think it's had it at five stars and then I dropped it to four and a half. Yeah, same. I like I overthought. I was like, man. So I need to maybe bump it. Five. Next time I watch it, maybe it'll go up. Stay tuned on Letterboxd. But one time I watched it, I was like, is this pacing too quick? And that was the reason I bumped it down. Like maybe the pace. But I think sometimes like I was just not in the mood for a very yeah. quickly paced movie. So I, but like the last three or two or three times I've watched it, the pacing has worked fine. So I'm well, like, well, okay, we both I bumped it down when we did our five star episode, right? That was when we, yeah, both we were being it. a little critical at that, at yeah, that and juncture. I think I you know, was, I was really weeding it out. I don't know. <laughs> well, and maybe we just wanted less movies to talk about in that episode, Probably. truly. Like we were just Probably. like, ah, we could skip Mr. I've Fox. thrown out a few more, five, quite a few more five stars since then. I've tried to give myself more room to give five star movies. Um, Maybe that should be our question. Like, what is a movie that you have overthought your <laughs> like a five star rating on, or like your love for? Well, I feel like <laughs> a lot of other people are not like us. <laughs> hey, hey, we not, 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 they don't stress about I'm, ratings. I'm not gonna and, like, lie. I think things. it's only us. Um, Maybe we could stick with our early question then. What character would you dress up as to a Wes Anderson themed party? I think that's a great question. That's a fun question. It's I think that is the question. I don't know. I think I would dress up as the, if I could like have the cost, you know what I mean? Like if I didn't have to mm-hmm. make the costume myself, like yeah, if I could pick a, a costume. It's, 
You can dream it up. I think I would do the lobby boy costume because I like the color. That's a great costume. And I think yeah. it's cute. Um, It's fun. Or the like Willem Dafoe outfit. It's pretty cool too. Yeah, I, I was thinking or the nar- the narrator from Moonrise Kingdom. He is a king. I He's under underrated in that movie. Yeah, Fixing the lighting for the camera, you know, just always thinking about the best thing for the shot. Yeah, let us know. There are 10 movies to pick from. Would you dress up as, would you get in a furry suit for Fantastic Mr. Oh Fox? My let us know. God. <laughs> hey, hey, they could. I, I don't judge, you know, do what you want. But yeah, hey, if it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, maybe, but, but if you could do it with the like corduroy <laughs> suit, good for you. Do you know that they used pieces for, I guess maybe from the main puppet, from Mr. Fox puppet, they used pieces of Wes Anderson's suit to oh. make the Fantastic Mr. That Fox That doesn't suit. surprise me. That's very cool. Because he literally wears that suit. Like, yeah, like in the every, like It's so funny. At Vanessa Mr. Fox, it's like whenever you see a, vi- it's like that suit. Like, does he wear yeah, another the suit brown, the corduroy? the brown corduroy. Maybe I would just dress up as Wes Anderson to the Wes Anderson party. You, I have a brown suit. I could do it. I mean, I it's technically my Kendall Roy suit. You kind of have the hair right now, But too. I could do it. I could dress up as Wes Anderson for Halloween. You have the hair. <laughs> what if like, I did? Wow. <laughs> what if I dressed up as Wes Anderson for Halloween? <laughs> You'd have to tell everyone who you are. That'd be really funny. They're like, oh, the grand... Maybe that's guy? what I'll do for my Christmas card this year. A what? And you can like try to recreate. Yeah, that'd be great. And Let's I'll do, do like a ma- ma- happy through. holidays from because I do a Christmas card every year for people who don't know. Yeah. Um, and I'll Photoshop myself as Wes Anderson with the Wes Anderson font and be like, I don't know, happy. Yeah, happy. well, ha- you have to say have it to in like a it. Wes Anderson way. Like, yeah, I, I have know. to, I gotta we'll, put some we'll, thought we'll into it. it. Workshop it. Workshop. I got plenty it. of time. <laughs> <laughs> you can let us know what who you would dress up as, though. Um, on Spotify, if you're listening, there's a feature where you can answer a question. Um, or you can reach out to us on all our social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, our website, our email. Everything's in the show notes. Let us know and we'll read it in our next episode, which actually will be in two weeks because we have to take a break next week because we're not going to be home. But we have some special things. So make sure wow. you follow us wow. on social media. It's going to be... We might be posting some some pictures pertaining to this very episode. I wouldn't say that, but maybe someone else would say mm, that. Someone might. Um, someone might say that. Someone might. What's our episode after that, though? What um, is, I actually don't know. Do we nothing. have anything in the schedule? We don't have anything in the schedule. Okay, so we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out, but right now it's a TBD, but it will be your answers will be read in that TBD uh-huh. episode. Yep. <sighs> I don't know if I have anything else. That was a lot. No, we, covered, we talked about a lot in this episode. I've been talking for two hours now, so my yeah, this is going to be a great edit tomorrow. I, I love that for me. Yeah, I love that for you and not for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like Wes Anderson, I'll be creating my perfect podcast. Wow, um, the way I want it. Perfect. So five um, stars. Yeah, five stars. And until next time, I am Khaki Scout Noah. And I am Lobby Boy Kayla. (laughs) And And we're we're your your secondhand film film critics. critics. Or your secondhand khaki scouts.